Let's pray. Father, having Jesus Christ is enough. That's all we need. Whom have we in heaven but you? And besides you, we desire nothing on the earth. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but, but you are the strength of our heart and our, por- our portion forever. Would you draw near to us now, Lord, as we look into your word and speak to us? We need, we need to hear from you tonight. We need to be changed by your word. So would you shape us through the power of your Holy Spirit this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Are you old enough to remember um, moms spanking their kids at Kmart or Walmart? Okay, me too. What do you think about that? I mean, my <laughs> when my parents caught us acting up in a store, my mom would say, wait until you get home. You know, corporal punishment is not something that's meant to be done in public. And I think there's something similar going on here in 1 Corinthians We have church members suing, taking to court other church members to a secular court, no less, in order to help settle their issues. And like a parent spanking their child in public, there's just something that's unsettling about it. That Christians are taking other Christians to court. In January... Pastor Impaglia from Rock Church in New York was taken to court by his church members over an alleged theft of $238. He was caught on camera taking money from the offering. The members claimed that he was stealing, but he claims that he was buying supplies for the church and that he has receipts to prove it. Well, the church got so heated over it that fights were breaking out in the church building to the point where a police presence was necessary when they met on Sundays. When the issue made it to trial, the judge said, I'm surprised that there is such conflict in a house of worship. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and we are supposed to represent him in holiness and truth, and it just doesn't seem right. In fact, Paul's going to say it's not right to take one another to court. I mean, what, what must it look like to a watching world? We live in a very <clears throat> litigious society who loves to take matters to court. People especially like it when they're proven right in court. That's the main purpose of going to court, right? We want to be proven right. But what if, instead of taking a fellow believer who had wronged us to court... We settled it ourselves, or we dropped the issue. What if we were willing to give up our right to prosecute them and instead look like, in some cases, fools and doormats because we were cheated by our own brothers in Christ? What might that say to the defrauder? What might that say to our church? 
would it not say that we are confident in God and His ability to handle some of these things? Paul has just finished saying that we need to remove the wicked person from our midst and recognize that we have responsibility to be God's judge effectively for those inside of our church and let God judge those outside the church. So remove the wicked man from among you, remove him over, or, or put, move him over to the realm of Satan, and we judge those inside the church, God judges those outside the church. In other words, we're not the final judges. He said that in chapter 4 as well. When they were, when they were arguing for all sorts of um, uh, superiority over Paul, Paul says, you're not my judge. You're not going to be the final arbiter of who or what I have done and my motives. And in fact, I am not my own judge. My conscience is clean, but even though it is clean, I'm not my final judge. God is. And that truth comes into play here in chapter 6 as well. Because Paul conceives of a case where it is okay for a Christian to give up his rights and be wronged by a fellow believer so that God ultimately will sort out the issue. So let's read our text, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Does any one of you, when he has a case against against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you and... You are you not competent to constitute the smallest smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. We love to talk about Christian freedom. Christ has died to set me free. But from what has He set us free? He has not set us free to live however we please. Right? Even Jesus was not that free. We are set free from the enslavement of sin. Not set free in order to sin. There's a dangerous movement going on in Christian circles that says, I have liberty and therefore I can do whatever I want. Christ has paid my debt in full, and He has. Therefore I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. Christian freedom does not free us to live however we please. You see this in two ways in the text. Number one, my Christian freedom, I should not sue, uh, uh, 
We'll get to that in just a second. My Christian freedom does not give me the right to sue my brother, verses 1 through 8. My Christian freedom does not give me the right to sue my brother. And then we'll see in verses 9 through 11, my Christian freedom does not give me license to engage in self-indulgent sin. So first, my Christian freedom does not give me the right to sue my brother. I should not, I must not sue my Christian brother because we believers, first, are well qualified to settle disputes. That's what verses 1 through 6 are about. We believers are well qualified to settle disputes. In what way? Well, we Christians will judge in the future kingdom of Christ. Imagine it. Christ is going to be sitting on His thrones and we will sit on thrones with Him. And we will judge the kingdom, those people who are in the kingdom. Paul begins here in verses 1 through 6 with a series of seven with a series of seven questions that show the absurdity of Christians taking Christians to a secular court. Notice the first question there in verse 1. Does any of you when he has a case against his neighbor dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints? He says as much in verse 6 as well. But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. So does anyone the word in the New American Standard dare to go to law? In other words, how dare you take a legal dispute to court before unbelievers? Why is that so foolish? What's so foolish about taking another Christian to court? And the answer is found in verse 3. Again, it comes in the form of questions, but we can draw out statements or declarations from the questions. Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So the statement there that we draw from that question is, we will judge the world. Do you not know? He's going to ask this three times. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 9. Do you not know? The implication is, you're so wise, right? We've kind of been seeing this. You talk about your wisdom in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. But don't you even know some of the basic, the basics of the Christian doctrine? And what should they have known? Do you not know what? What should they have known? Verse 2. The saints will judge the world. Now, um, keep in mind that when the Scripture writers use the word saint, they're not talking about it like Catholics use the word saint. Okay, saint. Um, that is, those who are venerated, uh, those who are turned into or they qualify as a special person. It's just a word that means holy ones. And it actually refers to all believers. To the saints at, I think it says there, even in chapter 1. To the church of God, chapter 1, verse 2. To those who have been sanctified, saints by calling. So he's talking about all believers here. And if you look at the, the, uh, the kind of activity that's going on in the Corinthian church, if these people qualify as saints, then anyone who's a Christian qualifies. Okay? The saints will judge the world. So, that is, Christians will judge the world. Verse 2. And this is confirmed, if we just do a, a, just a brief survey through the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we shall also reign with Him, with Christ. Revelation 2.26 and 27, He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to Him I will give authority over the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. I also received authority from my Father. Jesus says, I have the authority of the kingdom and I'm going to give you, I'm going to grant you, share some of that authority with you 
if you overcome. Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Here we have the Creator, the firstborn of all creation, who's fully capable of judging the world on his own. But what does he do? He chooses to share some of his authority with us believers, us finite believers. So here's the argument in verse 2. You will judge the world, and then notice the second part of the argument at the end of verse 2. If the world is judged by you, or we could say since the world is judged by you, that's the idea, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? So since you will judge the world, certainly you can handle minor squabbles. Can't you? You're going to judge the world. And included in that, verse 3, is more than that. It's, it's even that they will judge angels. Don't you know that? Here we have angels who we often um, revere. right? We, we have great honor for angels because of their position in the universe. And what Paul is reminding us is that we have authority over angels. We will judge them. Their deeds will be exposed to us and we will take part in judging them. And so here's the argument in verse 3. Since you will judge angels, can you not handle these smaller matters of life? Look at the second part of verse 3. How much more matters of this life? So if you're judging these spiritual things, right in the spiritual realm you have the angels and the demons. And if you're going to be judging them, can you not handle these smaller issues of conflict? Now, I, I want to make two clarifications, and, and I hate to give exceptions because Paul doesn't. But I think it's necessary to keep in mind that there, that in light of the larger context of Scripture, that this does not free us from underneath the rule of our secular government. As if, well, they have their laws, we'll do all of our law, law kind of things here. Okay, so... Let me just throw out a, just a really bizarre example. Somebody, a, a believing member, murders another believing member. And the family of the victim wants to take that person to court or try him criminally. So is Paul saying here, don't handle, don't take those to the secular court. Handle that yourself. No, that's not what he's saying. Right? Because... We must, Romans 13, submit to our human government who rules over us. They've been placed there by God for our good. They are servants of God, ministers of God, servants of God. It says there three times in the passage. So, okay, there are criminal activities that must be handled by our government. So don't think that that's what Paul is saying. That's what I want to clarify. Second clarification is that we should recognize that Paul is not saying that courts have no value. He's not saying that. Right? Did Paul ever make use of a secular court in the book of Acts? Absolutely. By choice or by co- coercion? Which one? Okay, by circumstance. But did he have any choice in the matter or was he forced to be in court? He had a choice. How did he have a choice? How do we know he had a choice? I appeal to Caesar. He didn't say, you know what, we'll just handle this. Now, now here's the, the clarification I want to make. 
Paul's dealing with some conflict between him and the, the Roman government who was trying to suppress the spread of the gospel. And Paul's saying, it is not illegal by the Romans or by the Jews for me to spread the gospel. It's not illegal. I can do this. I'm not breaking any laws. I am not blaspheming. Okay. So what Paul is doing is help to lay the groundwork for future missionaries who would come, church planners, who would come along in the first century and plant churches without uh, corruption from human government. Now, there's still lots of corruption and lots of persecution. Okay, but, but that's not what ta- Paul's talking about here. What is Paul arguing against here? He's arguing against lawsuits among believers over, I would suggest, petty issues. Let me show you why I think that. Verse 2. If middle, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to con- constitute the smallest law court? So cannot you make up a small court of some kind that handles some of these issues? And I would say by implication, probably lesser issues, not, not murder and sexual crime and things like that. All right, is that clear? I should not sue my brother because we believers... Or we could say, I, as a believer, am well qualified to settle dispute. I, th- I think it's probably talking about more us as a whole, because not everyone in the church is qualified to do that. He's going to make that argument here in just a second. Second reason under this subpoint, we are future judges, and then verses 4 through 6, we, we are capable. We are presently case- capable. At, at least one of us, or a few of us are wise enough to settle a dispute. That's what Paul's arguing here in verses 4 through 6. Paul uses a question to highlight the foolishness of their thinking. He wants to show the foolishness of a secular lawsuit or, or a Christian lawsuit in a secular court. He essentially says, let's imagine that there was an argument over which, over which missionary our church should support, and we couldn't come to a conclusion. We have this argument, this disagreement. We couldn't come to conclusion. So do we go to a secular court to help us settle that? Of course not. Look at, look at the text, and I'll show you this, verse 4. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Do you take secular judges, bring them into a, a dispute within the church, and have them settle which missionaries we send our money to? No. You see, we are, in a sense, going to be the supreme court of the universe. Why would we ask, essentially, a circuit court, the lowest level circuit court, to help us to decide over a matter? Right? Why would we, who, and this sounds a little bit proud, almost, like we're Christians and we, we are so wise. But I think Paul's saying, listen, Recognize who you are. Recognize your weight of responsibility to handle these things. Don't punt when it comes to settling disputes. Just like, oh, it doesn't really matter. We'll just let, let the courts do that. That's what, that's what they're there for. In verses 5 and 6, he goes one step further and says, not only is it foolish for you to go to a secular law court or for them to come and reside over some dispute within your midst, but, but it's actually shameful Isn't that what he uses there in verse 5? I say this to your shame. Now turn back to chapter 4, verse 14. Because there, he's arguing that 
that he is not inferior to them, even though he is poor, and from the world's perspective, he's poor and weak and foolish from the world's perspective. But notice what he says there in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish or warn you as my beloved children. So there he says, I don't want to shame you. But what does he say here in verse 5? I say this to shame you. Shame on you. You claim to be so wise. And yet, are you telling me that you don't have one person who can settle a small property dispute among believers? Right? You claim to be so wise. What wisdom you have? You can't even settle these small issues. Look at, look at the end of the verse. Verse 4. Um, verse 5. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? The brother goes along with brother and that before unbelievers. What a shame it is. Christians to be suing one another, taking it before unbelievers. I should not sue my brother because as believers we are well qualified to settle disputes. I should not sue my Christian brother because he is more important than my possessions, verses 7 and 8. My brother is more important than my possessions. When I take my Christian brother to court, I say with my actions that my possessions are more important than people. Look at how Paul states it in verse 7. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you. You already lost. I mean, what are you trying to do? What was your goal in taking these matters to court? What do you think their goal was? To win. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter if you win or lose on the verdict. You have already lost once you've taken him to court. That's defeat. You want to know what defeat is? It's not missing out on your settlement. Defeat is going to court. So if that's how defeat comes, taking my brother to court, then let's think about the opposite implication. How does victory come? In the mind of the Holy Spirit. If defeat comes by not going to court, no matter what the outcome, what's victory for a Christian? Not going to court. Look at the second part of verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Victory for a Christian here in opposition to defeat is to refrain from taking my brother to court. Listen to this. Even if it means that I suffer the loss of my possessions. Why? Because my Christian brother is more important than my possessions. My Christian brother is more important than my rights. I know my rights. I know, I know the law. I will win. Paul says you've already lost. How will the watching world respond when we sue our brothers, 
probably very similarly, similarly to the judge in the Rock Church case. I'm surprised that there is such a conflict in a house of worship. You know, maybe Christians aren't that different from non-Christians. Friends, it is better to be defeated. It's better to be wronged and defrauded than to be vindicated by a secular court over a dispute among Christians. Paul expounds upon this in verse 8, going a little farther, by saying that when I hold on to the idol of my rights, my entitlement, I sin against God. When I make it my idol to be entitled to what I want, I sin against God. Verse 8 says, On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. See, when I become so adamant about getting my way, about being vindicated, then I actually withhold mercy from my brother. Paul's saying, you're withholding of mercy. Even though they, you may be right and they may have wronged you, your withholding of mercy is actually a form of fraud. You have actually wronged your brother by taking him to court and not letting it go. And we might look at this and think, wait a second. If we're wrong, doesn't that mean that we're letting the defrauder get away with it? If, we're, if we were wronged, if, if we're right in the situation, they were wrong, and we don't do anything about it, then aren't we condoning their sin by not prosecuting them? A couple things to keep in mind. First, remember that the text implies victory to those who are willing to be defrauded in lieu of taking a brother to court. So, you've already won, even if the person gets away with it. Second thing to keep in mind is that we have to remember that, that there is a possible way to, to settle this. doesn't mean that you just turn into a doormat and let everybody walk all over you. Just steal from you left and right and, you know what, I can't do anything about it. It's a Christian brother. There is, there is a, a response, right? You have the capability within your own church with the future judges of the world to handle the dispute. So take it before your church. Is there not someone who can, in an unbiased way, look at the situation from both sides and determine an outcome, a, a judgment, a settlement? So, so we do have some recourse. And then thirdly, we need to keep in mind that if that doesn't happen, that person gets away with it. We're not condoning their sin. Instead, we are recognizing that God is their final judge. Final vindication will come. Everyone's going to have to give an account for what they have done, whether good or evil, the judgment seat of Christ. Every Christian is. My Christian freedom does not give me the right or the license to sue my brother. And then verses 9 through 11, my Christian freedom does not give me license to engage in self-indulgent sin. I have to admit, this transition from verses 1 through 8 to verses 9 to 11 seem a little unrelated. Would you agree? Right, we have the prohibitions against lawsuits, and then he jumps over to a list of vices that would send a person to hell. 
right? They're not going to enter the kingdom of God. So what is the connection? Well, first, notice that there is a connection. We need to recognize that. How do we know that there's a connection between verses 1 through 8 and verses 9 through 11? Okay, right. The verse, verse 9 starts with or. What is or? What kind of part of speech is that? It's a conjunction. And what do conjunctions do? They conjoin. <laughs> they, they connect or they conjoin. So they're connecting the previous idea. And that's why I tried to make these ideas parallel. That, that we don't have the license to sue, my, to sue our brother and to engage in self-indulgent sin. Notice the other connection there. The second four words, or, after, or the next four words. Do you not know? Does that sound familiar? Verses 2 and 3. So you should know this by now. So it seems to be that, that you are capable of being self-deceived with your relationship with God. That, that you could actually somehow believe that your Christian freedom has given you license to break the laws of God. And so Paul's saying, just as you could be deceived in how you treat your brother, taking them to court when you shouldn't, so you can be deceived in how you, uh, how you in, in, engage in these self-indulgent sins. As if I can engage in these sins and have heaven too. But Christian freedom does not give us the license to engage in these sins. Those who think that they can live however they please and also receive the kingdom of God are self-deceived. Let me prove that to you from the text. Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So, the reason he says don't be deceived is because there's a possibility that a professing, a professing Christian could be deceived into thinking that he's okay even though he's engaging in these self-indulgent sins. So he asked the question, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Or we could say that positively or in the form of a statement, the unrighteous will clearly not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he would say if he... We're using a declarative sentence. Don't be deceived. Then Paul lists ten forms of evil that are incompatible with the future kingdom of God. The first five have to do with immorality. The second five have to do with other self-indulgent sins. So the first five have to do with immorality, fornication, obviously, any kind of sexual impurity, idolatry, which, as God calls it in the Old Testament, spiritual adultery, which often was connected to these pagan, immoral rituals that would happen at the temple. That's another way to describe idolatry, spiritual adultery. Adultery, the third one, marriage infidelity. Effeminate, the word used elsewhere to describe softness, here it's used as a, some kind of self-indulgent sin. And then fifthly, homosexuality. Perversion beyond what God made us to be and do. And then the final five 
in verse 10. Stealing, coveting, getting drunk, reviling, which is abusing people with our words, swindling or manipulating people. And the point that we need to be reminded of, just as well as the Corinthians, is that none who practice these things are Christians. None who practice these things will be in heaven. That is, if they do not repent, obviously, he's going to go on to say, such were some of you. So there are people who do practice those things too, who repent and, and are saved. But, but any so-called Christian who's engaging in these things is not a Christian. And therefore, we must set up a guard for ourselves. We must despise these sins and kill any seed of these sins that is beginning to sprout lest it grow up within us and destroy us both now and eternally. As Christians, we are not free to indulge in sin. Notice verse 11. Such were some of you. Paul concludes on a positive note that Christ has changed you through His Spirit and He has confidence that they're going to respond well to His message. Christ has changed you through His Spirit. Notice in this verse, every verbal phrase is in the past tense. So, not something that's happening now, not something that will happen, but something that has already happened. And all the verbs are in passive voice. What does that mean? Active and passive voice. What does that mean? Right, so I ran... Active or passive? Active. I was run over. Okay, that's passive. That's something that's done to me. Okay. Um, so, so that's what you need to keep in mind. As you're going through these, um, these verb, verbal phrases in here, they're all past tense and passive voice, which saying that this is a, a single act. It, it seems to me that something that happened at a moment in time Something that's been done to us. Who do you think's the actor? Like, if we're not the actor, we're passive, then who is the actor? Who do you think? Okay. Well, look, look at the end of the verse. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So the actors are the Lord and the Spirit. So God, the triune God, is active in our transformation and changing us. So this is not talking about sanctification, the progressive growth in godliness. That We'll see that in other parts of, of the Scripture. But here he's saying, such were some of you. Something happened to you before. And that happened at one moment in time. Let's look at what happened. There were three things. First, you were washed. You were spiritually cleansed. You, were, you had your guilt removed from you. Second, you were sanctified. Now that sounds like the word we use for progressive spiritual growth. But here he says you were sanctified. But, but there's other places in the Scriptures where it says you are being sanctified. Here he doesn't say that. That would be a progressive, ongoing act. This is something that's happened in the past, and so this is what theologians call initial sanctification, which is just another way to say regeneration, something that God, He set you apart for His purposes. I have chosen to take, to take this person and make him mine. So once one, one act... For all time. And then the third one is you were justified. That 
God has declared us at some point. He had, he had declared us to be righteous, even though we weren't. The bottom line is the Spirit has changed us. He has transformed us through salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And obviously we know that He is changing us, which is why Paul is calling them to action. So there is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit as well. But if He has changed us, such were some of you, then we will be complicit with the Spirit as He works with us so that we are not living like pagans, the list. That's how pagans live. Pagans live in immorality, adultery, fornication. They're thieves. They're manipulators. They're revilers. They're drunkards. That's what pagans do. Now, they might not do all those things, but, but that's what describes, in general, what non-Christians are like. And so, why would we act like that? Why would we live like that when that's what we were saved from? Anyone who engages in those kinds of things with an unwillingness to repent will end up in hell. So, why, why finish this way? I mean, what's the implied command here? Okay, he just lists, don't you know that these people aren't going to enter the kingdom of God? Such were some of you. You have been regenerated. What's the implied command? What's the implied expectation that Paul has? Right. Just like he said in the first eight verses. Don't take one another to court. Here he's saying, don't live like pagans. Stop living like you did when you were an unbeliever. So in that sense, verses 9-11 through 11 actually do apply to the lawsuit issue. These believers need to stop living like unbelievers who are constantly you know, spouting off about their rights. Don't be deceived into thinking that that's okay or that you have some kind of Christian liberty that allows you to do whatever you please. All right, two thoughts in closing. Number one, as a Christian, I am not entitled to immediate vindication. We hate being wronged. But we are not entitled to immediate vindication. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, we like to scream to everyone who will listen about our rights. Right? Just pull up your latest Facebook feed and you'll see from both Christians and non-Christians, what their rights are, what they're entitled to. And what I'm suggesting from this text is that we are not entitled to immediate vindication. That when we are wronged, you know, we somehow have this idea that we are going to have it made right. Someone's going to have to pay. If my hot coffee spills on me, someone's got to pay. If my child didn't excel enough at school, someone's head's going to roll. And that's why I think we have in our society such a spike in settlement law firms. Because everyone has to give what's coming to them, right? Have you been hurt in an accident? Well, yeah, but it was an accident. Right? That should be the answer, but instead it is, well, yes, I have been hurt in an accident. Someone's going to pay. The person who caused it, the car company didn't avoid it. They... they, they had some kind of neglect or the ambulance who showed up too late, someone has to pay. I think the idea of immediate vindication 
very much shared or promoted in our American culture, but it's not necessarily a biblical one. We live in a society of entitlement. I know my rights. I deserve to get what is coming to me, and if anyone wrongs me, they're going to pay, and they're going to pay now. Now, it's clear that in the Old Testament that the law was set up to take care of wrongs committed to the community. So I don't want you to think, well, wait a second, what about all these laws in the Old Testament? It said, you know, if you did this to your brother, then you had to, you had to pay for it five times, and, and you know, you had to... Um, some people died, obviously. But, but keep in mind that we do not live in a theocracy. Okay? In case you've been asleep for a little while. We don't live in a theocracy. Our God's appointed ruler is ruling over us with God's covenant with us. Okay? We live in a democratic republic, and so the reality is that we as Christians may not receive immediate vindication when we are wronged. The story is told of an atheist farmer who was trying to prove a point. So he planted his crop on Sunday. He watered on Sunday. He fertilized only on Sundays. He reaped only on Sundays, and in the end... He had a bumper crop. Boy, was he proud. You know his message to the believers in town was? So much for God and his Sundays. The response by one man was, Sir, God does not always make full reckoning in October. So it's not wrong to desire vindication final vindication. But we are not entitled to immediate vindication. If anyone deserved immediate vindication, it was whom? Or who? It was Jesus. And yet He didn't come to earth demanding His rights. I am the God of the universe. You need to bow down to Me. You need to serve Me. Instead, He came as a suffering servant. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He endured ill treatment and reproach and betrayal, even by some of the people who were closest to him, like his own family and Judas. And if Jesus can endure wrongs, if Jesus can delay and seeing vindication on his enemies, then how much more should we not be willing to accept the wrong of our brothers and sisters in Christ and trust that God's going to sort it all out in the end? As a Christian, I am not entitled to immediate vindication. And then as a Christian... I must destroy the idol of my possessions at the altar of mercy. Such were some of you. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. But that does not give us a license to indulge in sin. So instead of fighting against one another over what belongs to us, wouldn't our church be well served if each one of us was quick to release the grip that we have on our own possessions? Wouldn't our church be well served if we were slow to become angry? Quick to pour out mercy even on those who
who have wrongfully mistreated us. Although we are free in Christ when we take our brother to task over petty, petty fraud issues, we live as if things are more important than people. And there are two options when you're defrauded. Get it settled in the church. What's the other option? Let it go. Be defrauded. Be wrong. Those are your two options. Get it settled in church or be defrauded. And as a recipient of mercy, can you not show mercy even to that brother who defrauded you? think because we have been shown mercy, we of all people can show mercy to those who have wronged us. All right. Any questions or comments?